The readings today present us with two images, God's mercy and God's justice. And we see that in the first reading to Isaiah, we see that in Psalm 23, and we see that in the gospel. God's mercy is in the image of this royal banquet, this wedding feast, this joyous time with beautiful decor and rich food and sumptuous drink. And he says that on this mountain, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the people of Israel, God will wipe away every tear and destroy the veil that veils every nation. And we will be laid down by restful waters And God has slaughtered the fattened calf and the cattle. But on the other side is God's judgment. And this is the part we need to realize. Isaiah's image is not for everyone. It's for the people of Israel. It's for those who belong to God. The the very next verse in Scripture talks about Moab, which is all the other nations, represents all the other nations, and those who are away from God. And says, God is not preparing a feast for them. God is going to stamp them out and put his feet on them. Similarly, in the gospel, of course, we just heard that many of the people of Israel in this parable, many of God's followers ignored the invitation or went so far as to kill the servants who were calling them to this feast. And make no mistake, brothers and sisters, it's very easy to fool ourselves to think that each of us at all times are part of the new Jerusalem, part of the new children of God, and that it's almost a guarantee, or that we don't have to be introspective, we don't have to examine our lives. But the navigator that we have to cross the ocean of our life with all of its calm spots and all of its large waves is our conscience. Our conscience will lead us, hopefully, towards moral choices and away from immoral choices, towards the Lord and not away from him, towards God and not an illusion of God. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, how do we have a well-formed conscience? And I'm sure you've heard that phrase many times. But if you've never asked yourself, I'll tell you right now, it's very simple, how to form or how to create a well-formed conscience, because the church means a very specific thing with that. And you can look in the catechism, it's in the 1700s, 17, let's just say 1776, or about there. That should be easy to remember. But in chapter 6 there, it's talking about how to make a well-formed conscience, how to decide according to your conscience, but... Like a lot of things with the, with the catechism, for many people, it can be very convoluted or it's so subtle what it's saying that it's hard to kind of pull it out, pull out the details, pull out the, the core of what it's saying. So this is good for me too, but let me go through that just a little bit. There are four steps to making a well-formed conscience. So just imagine a square with the four corners. And in one corner is sacred scripture, and another is tradition, or the magisterium, the teaching authority of the bishops of the church that has been given to the bishops by the Holy Spirit, who is the soul of the church, who enlivens the church. And the bottom two corners are reason and experience. 
So scripture and tradition, reason and experience. And if you take all four of those things and come to the center, you have a well-formed conscience in general. And in a particular case, you have a moral choice, a moral decision that you have made, hopefully. So let's take a fairly non-controversial issue to walk through this, example to walk through this. And that would be murdering somebody, okay? Scripture talks about how we're made in the image and likeness of God and how Cain's sin against Abel is horrible and cries out to God and how Jesus says, love your neighbor and says, if you are even angry at your neighbor, you have committed as much angry at your neighbor or angry at your brother in your heart, you may as well have killed him, broken the fifth commandment. And there are other things like that, but that's the basic idea. Okay, God, God wants the sinner to return to him and not to die. Then we have tradition. We have all the documents of the church. And, of course, they reiterate what Scripture says, and they are a little more specific as well, but not totally specific, but a little more specific, of course, at how the loss of life is reprehensible in any situation. But sometimes it's allowed, like for self-defense, for example, in certain cases. If someone's threatening your life or the life of ones that you love, okay, but also says, the taking of life is, all, is rarely moral and rarely good. Okay. And reason is we all want to live. All right, so this is the just logical part. We all want to live, and there are very few things that require the ending of someone else's life to resolve. There are better ways. There are ways that just can handle that. And then experience is hopefully the way you were brought up and in this country and everything, you have had lots of positive influences and just know or have experienced people talking about how the death, the death penalty is wrong and the ending of little babies' lives is wrong and all those kinds of things. So altogether, you get this clear picture that the moral, the moral decision or the well-formed conscience in this area is to oppose murder, very simple. And we're supposed to use this formula, this idea, this framework in all decisions, small decisions, quick decisions, and large decisions that are complex and take a lot of time to think through. But the more that we're conscious of us using this framework, the faster we get at it and the more we're attentive to it so that we know and don't kid ourselves that we're going towards God, that we're following our conscience. But the church says a few other things about in the 1700s there that Not everyone knows the same thing. Not everyone, certainly, almost no two people have the same experiences in their life. And we only know different amounts of things. I may or may not know scripture and the, Vatican, and the uh, papal documents, church documents, better than you. I'm going to guess there's somebody out there that knows them better than I do. And so what you decide properly by using that framework as your moral, moral choice, can be different from mine. But the church says you have to follow your conscience. You cannot let, and you should not let, anyone else, in a sense, tell you what to do. No. Make the decision for you. You can have other people tell you what to do, because that's input, right? When a priest tells you something, there's a certain amount of weight. It's not 100%. It's not total weight. It's not do everything I say but you should have some attentiveness to it to like, okay, there must be something more to this or, or maybe he's right. 
But I do the same thing with all of you whenever you call me out on something or, or point something out. I'm like, oh, I probably messed up because I'm open to this because the church says we must continue to develop our conscience. The church also says that even worse than making than denying yourself or going against your own conscience, your own well-formed conscience, is that if there is an issue or a behavior that you have or an issue that you disagree with, that you think or have an inclination, like there is something more that the church teaches about this, and you choose not to look into it at all, or you choose not to learn more about it, not to discover what the church really teaches, then the amount of guilt is far exceeded than if you didn't know at all and you still, let's say, committed that murder. There is an obligation. Ignorance is no excuse for the law. Ignorance is no defense against the law. Whatever that phrase is. That's not in the catechism, but that's the idea. We cannot let ourselves, says the catechism, says the church, we cannot let ourselves stay where we are. We must constantly be re-examining ourselves, questioning our conscience, and the catechism does talk about this too, re-examining our conscience, talking to him or her, figuring out, are we right? Is this, are you really leading me into safer, calmer waters, restful waters, or are you leading me into choppy waters, hurricane waters, wavy, high-crested waters? Are you leading me towards God or away from God? Are we like this person who came into the wedding feast, who didn't have a wedding garment, who's pretty good, but there was still something missing with this person? They still didn't take all the time to prepare. And so God, who is not fooling anybody, or is not fooled by anybody, will come to you, will come to me, will come to this person and say, where's your wedding garment? Why aren't you prepared for this? And the person at that point knows that they're in the wrong, finally. And they have to admit it to themselves because the king, God, has admitted it to them. And so the man was reduced to silence. And the king said, I'm sorry. He got his servants and he threw them out where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. Complacency is the enemy of a well-formed conscience. Complacency is the enemy of being a disciple of Christ. And if we want to be part of the new Jerusalem and not part of Moab, if we want to have every tear wiped from our face, we cannot kid ourselves, brothers and sisters, but we must ask the Lord always to help us to grow, to know what is right, truly right, and to be open to further input, to further growth. That way, if we've used this structure of the four corners to make moral decisions, and the person we're talking to has done the same, then no matter how controversial the issue, no matter how complex the issue, we can actually discuss with one another and say, well, according to scripture, I thought it said this, and according to reason, I thought about this, and according to tradition, I thought about this, and here's my experience. What's yours? And then when we have differing issues on anything and everything, we can discuss it. Which is why if we apply this structure to, again, the upcoming election, and I'll be careful this time, and we look at I Vote Catholic, and we look at the bishops 
you hit the one of the very first buttons, the bishop's understanding of, of their recommendations on how to vote, and you look at paragraph 34, and it says that a Catholic cannot vote for a cannot vote for a, fa- a candidate who supports an intrinsically evil act unless let me get to it so I have the words exactly right if the voters intent if the voters intent is to support that intrinsically evil act they cannot vote for that candidate okay well that leaves a pretty big out okay well I'm going to vote for this person but I don't support all these other horrible things, or these intrinsically evil acts that they support. In such cases, a Catholic would be guilty of formal cooperation in grave evil, okay? At the same time, however, a voter should not use a candidate's opposition to intrinsic evil to justify indifference or inattentiveness to other important moral issues. So, for example, I've had some people tell me, right, we love that Trump is pro-life and anti-abortion, but he has all those migrant children in those what sometimes what are, can be called concentration camps. Well, we don't ignore that. We want to petition him to end those because that is an injustice. But we love what he's doing or trying to do against abortion. And then paragraph 35 says, there may be times when a Catholic reje- who rejects a candidate's unacceptable position, so like, So, well, yeah, so we would reject Biden's total pro-abortion stance on that intrinsically evil act, that genocide, that million deaths a year in this country alone. We reject that, but it may be reasonable to decide to vote for that candidate on other morally grave reasons. Voting in this way would be permissible only for truly grave moral reasons not to advance narrow interests or partisan preferences or to ignore a fundamental evil. So when we're thinking, we're thinking, okay, if this is what the magisterium is talking about, this is one of the corners, are we ignoring things to vote for one candidate, either way or the other? Or are we actually considering it all? Are we considering what Scripture says, are we considering what the church says, what reason says, and what experience says. The bishops also go on further and say that a hope, a candidate's hope of change does not equal another candidate's actual action in that area. If we hope that one candidate will improve in a certain area and go in line with Catholic moral teaching, but the other candidate is, the hope for is not equal to the current action. But again, brothers and sisters, this all just comes down to not being complacent and being open. Being open to hearing parables from the Lord and seeing if they apply to us earnestly and honestly, taking the time to truly desire to be in the wedding feast and not desiring, not desiring to go our own way to let our conscience be fooled, and to follow wherever we think we ourselves alone should go.